So a few years later, the king of Ben-Hadad, chapter 6, verse 24, of Syria, assembled his entire army and attacked and besieged Samaria. Samaria. Now, the difference here is, before there were just raiding parties coming down. And the people who have been changed are the raiders. Now Ben-Hadad says, I'm not using raiders anymore. I'm switching to my full-blown military army. And I'm going to send my army to put Samaria under siege. Now, when you put a city under siege, you're cutting them off from all food and all water. And the hope is that they will either starve to death and you'll be able to walk in eventually. Because it's not hard to enter a city if people aren't dropping things on you from the city walls, like arrows and rocks and and boiling feces and all that kind of stuff. Or you're hoping that they'll get so desperate they'll open their gates and you're able to walk in. But sieges get desperate. Samaria's food supply ran out, and they laid siege to it so long that a donkey's head was selling for 80 shekels of silver and a quart of um, dove's droppings for five shekels of silver. So the equivalent of this is the donkey's head is selling for two pounds of silver. And the, the little bit of dung that comes from a pigeon, or a dove, sorry, is selling for two ounces of silver. This is extremely expensive. They're so desperate, they're eating donkey brains. They're eating donkey brains. And they're paying two pounds of silver for donkey brains. Well, what would they want pigeon or dove poop for? Dove poop is for starting fires to keep warm or maybe to cook the donkey's brain because everybody knows that just eating it raw is not good. But things are absolutely desperate. So verse 26, while the king of Israel was passing by on the city wall, a woman shouted to him, help us, my master, O king. He replied, no, let Yahweh help you. How can I help you? The threshing floors and the wine press are empty. And the king asked her, what's your problem? So she says, help us, king. And the king sarcastically says, no, let Yahweh help you. Obviously, I can't do anything. We're all dying in this city. If Yahweh is really taking care of us, then he should help you. But then in that moment, he's like, okay, but what can I do? She says this, this woman said to me, hand over your son and we'll eat him today and then eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And then I said to her the next day, hand over your son and we will eat him. But she hid her son. It is not uncommon all throughout human history for mothers to literally kill their children and eat them. And fathers to do this. This is... The depravity of humanity is so deep in us that we will do the unthinkable. This is why God can say, like, there are none who are good. And you're like, what about mothers who sacrifice their life for children and all that kind of stuff? Okay, yeah. But the Bible and human history has shown over and over and over again, when things get desperate enough, mothers will also eat their children. And people will do a lot of things to survive. And the thinking is, I can always have more children. Now, we don't think that way because we're in a culture where we're like, if you're having two or three kids or four, you're like considered like going a little crazy, okay? But in the ancient world, they had kids over and over and over and over again. 
And that was not uncommon for them to think this way. And you can go through medieval history in Europe. You can go through China. You can go to lots of places, and you'll find lots of cases where when people are put under siege, a lot of cannibalism begins to run rampant. It's a very common thing. Even with soccer teams from Brazil, it crashed in Alaska, right? Was that Brazil? So nobody remembers. Yeah, and the Indies. Yeah, Ecuador. That's what it was. That soccer team for Ecuador, and they crashed, and, and they started eating each other. So we will do lots of things when we're desperate for survival. This horrifies the king. Because think about their logic. Not only are they eating their children, but the woman's complaint for justice has nothing to do with like, oh my goodness, this woman ate my child. Her complaint is, it's so unfair. We ate my kid, but we're not eating her kid. Not only is she willing to eat the children, but her logic is so jacked up. When the king heard what the woman said, he tore his clothes as he was passing by in the wall. And the people could see he was wearing sackcloth under his clothes. And then he said, My God, judge me severely if Elisha, son of Shaphat, is still has his head by the end of the day. He immediately blames God for all this. And he believes that everything could be fixed if he can kill Elisha. Here's the irony of the situation. Just a few a year ago or so, Elisha was telling him where the enemy was attacking him so he could escape. Just a year ago, he was throwing a banquet for his enemies. Now, Elisha is not protecting him, and now they're starving to death. And what God is trying to show him is, I can give you great victory, but it also can bring judgment on you. And if I'm going to show you grace and mercy and demonstrate my power and my mercy to you, and your heart doesn't change back to me, then you're going to reap my judgment. And you're going to be completely on your own. I have shown you where the enemy is so you can escape. I have brought the enemy to you and allowed you to give them a banquet and sent them away. And yet your heart still has not turned to me. Your faith is still not on me. There is no repentance. There is no revival. Now I'm br- you're on your own. You're on your own. And yet all he can think is God's fault. If you're so great and awesome, you don't need God. You should be able to fix this on your own. And that's what God is trying to teach him. If you do not respond to the grace and the mercy of God, then the judgment of God will come. The judgment of God will come. But here's the other thing. His people are starving. Now, it is possible to get people slipped out of the city through tunnels and the wall. And you can get messengers out, and that's no problem. But that's way different than bringing like, tons and tons of food and water into the city. So you might be able to sneak somebody out and they might be able to come back, but to bring like tons of resources in the city to feed your people or to have your whole people um, evacuate the city is a completely different thing. So his people are starving. And what does he decide to devote the last resources and the energy of his people in the city? He sends people out of the city walls so they can go kill Elisha. That's what he decides to spend his last hours on when his people are dying of hunger. So Elisha was sitting in his house with a community of leaders. And the king sent a messenger on ahead. But before he arrived, Elisha said to the leaders, Do you realize this assassin intends to cut off my head? 
Look, when the messenger arrived, shut the door, lean against it, and his master will certainly be right behind him. So Elisha once again sees what's going to happen before it even happens. So he's sitting with a bunch of leaders and he says, all of a sudden he's like, oh, the king of Israel is sending messengers right now to kill me. He's going to assassinate me right now, right in front of you. Let's block the door. And this is incredibly a moment of satire. So he was still talking to them when the messengers approached and he said, look, Yahweh is responsible for this disaster. Why should I continue to wait for Yahweh to help? Elisha replied, hear the word of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh says. The moment of satire is that they're trying to get into the house. And Elisha and all these leaders are leaning up against the door and trying to keep out. And so you have all Elisha, this old man with a bunch of leaders, and they're leaning against the door and pushing on it to keep it from flying in. And all these soldiers are pushing on the outside, and they're having this like tug and war, so to speak. Well, push and push. (laughs) War between them on the door, and they're talking to each other through the door. And you're like, wait a minute, is is this what it's come down to? Elisha's been able to strike people with blindness and all this kind of stuff, and now he's like trying to hold the door closed as somebody's coming in. It's like John Candy trying to hold the door closed as the bear's beating down on it and the great outdoors. It's the messenger. And then the idea the king is saying it. So the messenger's communicating what the king has said. He was still talking to them when the messenger approached and said, Look, Yahweh is responsible for this disaster. Why should I continue to wait for Yahweh to help? Elisha replied, Hear the word of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of finely milled flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley will sell for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So basically what Elisha is prophesying is that the circumstance will be reversed. By this time tomorrow, you have such an abundance of barley and wheat that an entire seah, which we would think of like a couple quarts, will sell for like pennies. Yahweh is going to show mercy again. So there's mercy and then judgment and then mercy. But all this is to constantly keep demonstrating the power and the mercy of God for this king to come back to him. An officer who was with the king's right-hand man responded to the prophet, Look, even if Yahweh made it rain by opening holes in the sky, could this happen so soon? Elisha said, Look, You will see it happen with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of food. So he doubted this. He's like, there's no way that can happen that quickly. Uh, Basically, there's no way God can make that happen. Now, he should know better. Because he grew up, every single Israelite, regardless of your faith, grew up on the most famous stories. And that is the stories of... God leading them out of Egypt and providing bread and quail and water in the wilderness. Everybody knew that. Just like every American knows that Easter is about the death and resurrection of Christ, even if they don't believe in it. And the Exodus was told like that. And yet he says, there's no way it can happen. So Elisha responds by saying, you will see it, but you will not eat it. Your lack of faith. Or chapter 7, verse 3. Now, four men with skin disease. So from this moment, Elisha and all these soldiers and stuff kind of go out of frame. And God shifts to these four people with skin diseases. And then he's going to bring the two stories together. 
Now four men with skin diseases were sitting at the entrance of the city gate. They said to one another, Why are we just sitting here waiting to die? If, they go, if we go into the city, we'll die of starvation. If we stay here, we will die. So come on, let's defect to the Syrian camp. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, well, we were going to die anyways. Now, what's interesting is, remember, this is, everything is reversal here. All these stories are reversal. The young girl knows more about Elisha than the king of Israel does. The Syrian general responds with greater faith than the king of Israel does. Okay, the, 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 the servants have more logic and reason than the, the great kings do. We have another role reversal here. The, the people with skin diseases who are the insignificant and the outcasts have more reason than the women in the city. The women are thinking, hey, if we're going to survive, we should eat our children. The people with the skin disease are thinking, we were caught outside the city when the Syrians come. We can't go in the city because everybody's dying in there. We will too. We don't really want to go to the Syrian camp because they're going to kill us. So they just decide to sit outside the city walls for all these days. But now everything is getting so desperate, they're like, if we stay here, we're going to start a death. If we go in the city, we're going to start a death. If we go to the Syrians, we could be given food out of compassion or be killed. Either way, our lot is better with them. They're not thinking, hey, let's go kill somebody and eat them. And they're not cursing God and getting angry at him and blaming everything. And they're not thinking, hey, let's go chase down the prophet and try to kill him. What they're thinking is, let's just go where there's food and see if somebody shows us mercy. And their logic is way more sound than the noble, wealthy women of Israel. Now remember that. Because when we get to the prophets, especially Isaiah, God is going to go after the noble women of the city. He is going to rip them a new one and call them fat cows of Bashan. And he's just going to lay into them and say, oh, a day is coming when you will be massacred. And many of us are thinking like, what? How can you do that to women? Because this is what women do when they're wealthy and noble and they're desperate. They eat their own children. And the contrast is here. And by calling them cows, he's not insulting their weight. He's saying that they're feeding off of the poor and making themselves big with wealth and prosperity and gems and necklaces and all that kind of stuff. When he arrived, he stood before them and said, oh, sorry, I have no idea where I'm reading right now. So these men with skin disease are showing a greater reasoning and a greater trust maybe in God or in somebody's mercy than these people are. Verse 5. So they started toward the Syrian camp at dusk, and when they reached the edge of the Syrian camp, there was no one there. Yahweh had caused the entire Syrian camp to hear the sound of chariots and horses, the heavenly army of God, and a large army. And they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has paid the king of the Hittites and the Egypt, Egypt to attack us. So they got up and fled at dusk, leaving all their tents, all their horses, their donkeys. They left the camp and ran for their lives. Now at this time period in human history, Aram is one of the greatest forces of military might in this part of the world. But... Egypt and the Hittites together 
were a greater force than Aram. And even Aram could not defeat Egypt and the Hittites together. Now, it was not common for the Hittites and the Egyptians to be allied with each other because many of these nations couldn't get along long enough to really truly be allied. But there were some moments in human history where the Egyptians and the Hittites had allied with themselves. Now, Iran wasn't too worried about them because most of the time the Hittites and the Egyptians allied themselves with each other and they were attacking places south of Egypt like Nubia and Kush and all those places. And it was very, very rare for them to really make their way all the way up to Iran. And so even though Aram knew that they could never have any hope to defeat the Egyptians and the Hittites together, they also had no fear of them because they didn't really make them that, they didn't make, go that far north that often. But they, the, and you have to realize too, if you, you were a military warrior for your entire life, you're going to begin to recognize the sound of horses and chariots. And you're going to begin to recognize like if, what that sound means, how many soldiers are. When you hear them and then you see them, and you can kind of guess how many people are out there by how many people can fit in a certain area. You're going to get an idea that this loud of a noise means that kind of an army, this loud noise. So whatever, they heard a noise that was so loud that it communicated an army that was so great that they had never faced. And the only thing that they knew that was that big was the Egyptian and the Hittites. And they assumed they had actually come this far north up. And they were scared of them so scared of them that they ran and left everything behind. Remember, oftentimes God defeated the enemies by just confusing them. Just confusing them. So they leave everything behind. Verse 8, When the men with skin disease reached the edge of the camp, they entered the tent with a meal. They also took some silver and golden clothes and went in and hid it all. Then they went back and entered another tent, and they looted it. And they went and hid what they had taken. <laughs> they go into the tent and they discover a meal. Now they're starving, so they immediately like shoving food in their mouth, that kind of stuff. And as they're probably shoving around, they're like, oh my gosh, there's silver and gold everywhere. But they're afraid that like they're going to be back at any moment. So they're like grabbing silver and like running out of the camp, like, like their mouth full or something like that. And they're burying it in the ground and they're coming back and they're like, Nobody's come back still. So they grab more silver and gold from another tent. It's like they're just like hoarding. This is what you do. Okay, if you've ever seen people who've lived on the streets for a long period of time and they get desperate, when, they, when you invite them to some places, they, they tend to like <laughs> grab food and store it away. I remember I had a friend who adopted somebody who had actually like lived in an orphanage and actually had lived on the street for a long time before they were picked up by an orphanage and he adopted them. And he said even like a year or two after living with him, he was still like, his son was always like grabbing food and sticking in pockets and they would do laundry and find food everywhere and that kind of stuff. And he's like, try to explain, you're here now, you're with us. You don't have to do this anymore. But it was so in his brain that he couldn't change. These are people who are used to begging. They're desperate for life. So all they can think of is like, I got a store, I got a store, like a squirrel. Because who knows when this will no longer be here anymore for me. So they do all this. But then they said this. This is so interesting. Verse 9. Then they said to one another, It is not right that we're doing this. This is a day to celebrate, but we haven't told anyone. If we wait until dawn, we'll be punished. So come on, let's go and inform the royal palace. So they went out and called to the gatekeeper of the city. And they told them, We entered the Syrian camp, and there was no one there. 
We didn't even hear a man's voice. But the horses and donkeys are still tied up, and the tents remain up, and the gatekeepers relay the news to the royal palace. The noble women of power are eating their children. Yet the people with skin disease who have been mistreated by the noble women, who have been forced to live outside the city gates and sit and only get the scraps that are thrown over the walls, so to speak, are in the tent and thinking, we need to share this with everybody. The people have mistreated us. The people who have yelled skin disease and ran away from us. The people who looked down on us and said, God is judging you and that's why you have that. The people who have just given us their insignificant food that they don't want anymore. And they're thinking, we should celebrate and share this with everybody. And this is another rural reversal. Not only do they have greater sound logic than everybody else, not only does their logic not really condemn anybody, attack anybody, or curse God, but they're willing to share this bounty with the people who have cursed them, the people who have looked down on them. And what God is showing is that the people that we often see as the insignificant, the not worthy, the ones who are deserving of things, are the ones who are coming to God and showing greater compassion than the people of wealth. The people that we typically want to be seen by and be accepted by are the ones who are less likely to actually come to God and show compassion. The people who don't really improve our status in life if we become friends with them are usually the ones who are more likely to respond to God and act like him. And this is what God keeps showing in these stories. Is this is why Jesus says, I have come for the sick and the poor and the needy. Because those are typically the ones who respond better and those are the, typically the ones who are more likely to show compassion because people who have suffered are more likely to be empathetic than the people who have never suffered. Even in my own life, my wife and I were just talking about this the other day, we have found that when we are broken by God or we realize our brokenness in a certain area and we truly realize that we're truly broken in that area and truly like completely desperate, we are more likely to show compassion and be empathetic to those people in the same circumstances. Where it was very easy to look down on them and think, well, you, that you're, you're reaping the decisions of your choices. And then you realize that you're broken in that area and you're desperate and it's much easier to think, oh, I understand that people have different lots in life and we all come from different paths. And that's what God is in the business of. He wants to break you so that you have more empathy for more people. And the more broken you are, the more empathetic that you are towards more people. The gatekeepers relayed this information to the king. In verse 12, the king got up that night and said to his advisors, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we are starving, so they left the camp and hid the field, thinking, when they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and enter the city. Now, he is paranoid. And this is the other thing. People of power often become very paranoid. They become very paranoid. And think about it. Like, in some ways, he has every right, because when the more powerful and the more wealthy you are, the more people want to attack you. The more people want to attack you and take what you want. And not only that, even celebrities. I've often seen many interviews with Rihanna and some people who basically say they feel lonely and they're miserable and alone, depressed all the time. You're like, yeah, but you're famous and people around you all the time. 
but they don't know who's really their friend or not. Because they have all this wealth that people typically want to be their friends only because of what they can get from them. And so what happens is you become very paranoid. The more powerful and the more wealthy you are, you become more paranoid of who truly is against me and who's for me. And you become very suspect of a lot of people because oftentimes it is true. And so he immediately sees a trap. He can't even recognize the grace of God. And he sees it as a trap. So one of his advisors replied, pick some men and have them take five of the horses that are left in the city. And even if they are killed, their fate will be no different than that of the Israelite people who are all going to die here. Now notice, once again, the servants have better logic than the king. The king's like, no, this is a trap. And the advisors say, let's just send a couple horses because we're all going to die anyways. So the Syrians kill us, then so... Notice that they have the same logic as the people with skin disease, but yet completely separate of the people with the skin disease. Everybody's more intelligent than the king. <laughs> Let's send them out so that we can know for sure what's going on. So they picked two horsemen, and the king sent them to track the Syrian army. And he ordered them, go and find out what's going on. So they tracked them as far as the Jordan, and the road was filled with clothes and equipment that the Syrians had discarded in their haste. <laughs> like, that's why it's like they're just throwing them behind them. Which is not uncommon. Usually if an army chases down another army, if an army is trying to move fast and they don't feel like they're running fast enough, they'll throw a bunch of things off to lighten the load. And you've seen that in movies with airplanes and like hot air balloons and that kind of stuff, or ships. So they do the same thing on foot as well with wagons. So they tracked them as far as the Jordan. Um, the scouts went back and told the king, and the people went out and looted the Syrian camp, and a sea of finely milled flour sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel, just as Yahweh had said it would. Now, once again, we're seeing this just as God had said, in fulfillment of the word of the prophecy. That is a very dominant theme in this book, that God's word is always right, and nothing can stop the word of Yahweh. But there's one last prophecy to be fulfilled. The right-hand man. Verse 17, Now the king had placed the officer, who was his right-hand man, at the city gate. And when the people rushed out, they trampled him to death in the gate. This fulfilled the prophet's word, which he had spoken when the king tried to arrest him. The prophet told the king that two seas of barley would sell for a shekel and a sea of finely milled flour for a shekel. And this will happen about this time tomorrow in the gate of the Samaria. But the officer replied to the prophet, Look, even Yahweh made it rain, by op- even if my Yahweh made it rain by opening holes in the sky, would this happen? As soon as Elisha said, look this, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of the food. This is exactly what happened to him, and the people trampled him to death in the city gate. So he saw it, but he never partook of it. So God is showing over and over and over again his sovereignty and mercy. Now, remember, at this point, he has every right to condemn them, every right to judge them, every right to just kick them out of the land. And yet he is constantly trying to give them another chance, another chance. If this was our lives and we were dealing with people like this, these women who were cannibalizing people, kings who are constantly like this, we'd be like, God, goodness, just lock them up and throw them away. We are done with them. Yet God keeps showing compassion. 